Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this week was Genesis 3, 14 through 20. Genesis 3, 14 through 20 is the Lord's response to Adam and Eve's sin. So we have, prior to this, within the biblical narrative, God creating all things by his word and everything very being very good. We have the Sabbath rest that is present and enduring for the people, for Adam and Eve, as they walk with God, as God visits them in the cool or wind of the day. And then we have the serpent denying the word of God and tempting for disobedience such that Eve does take of the fruit and gives it to Adam and he eats too. And the Lord begins to ask questions that he already knows the answer to and kind of draws out confession of sorts from Adam and Eve. Only... The confession ends up being a blame game. Adam points to the woman. The woman points to the serpent. And the serpent says nothing. Then starting with the serpent and working backwards, the Lord pronounces the consequences of of these actions. Cursing the serpent and cursing the ground. And expressing difficulty in childbearing but also promising a seed, a son of the woman who will conquer the snake and ultimately undo the work. Redenize a people and a world. Redenize the world and a people for himself. Genesis three fourteen through 20. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. 
and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Well, good morning again. You can again turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Today we're looking at the final woe that Jesus pronounces against the scribes and Pharisees. This announcement of judgment by the just judge, in light of the things he's already said, how their zeal is misguided and ultimately doing more harm than good, that ultimately they've missed the heart of the matter They've missed the matter of the heart, which led into the fact that they're washing the outside, stapling fruit to a tree, washing only the outside of a dish and leaving the inside, leaving the heart dirty, filthy. Then he rounds it off. Matthew 23. 29 through 36. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would speak to us today. Speak to us of the glories and grace of your Son. Speak to us of your justice and your mercy, both displayed in these words, both displayed in the life of Jesus, and both displayed in his death. May we rightly understand how we might escape from being sentenced to hell. And may we rightly live as one so saved by things outside of us 
to live humbly and to live belonging to you since we've been bought with a price. And so, Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, this time of year, the word peace gets thrown out a lot. Indeed, it might not just be this time of year, but it can often be mentioned in connection with the Christmas season, that it's a time of joy and a time of peace. I was reading online this week. Someone was reminding that peace may be talked about a lot, but it also seems to be quite elusive, evasive. We talk about it everywhere, but don't seem to experience it to the same degree. Indeed, that article started talking about Michael Jordan. In his Hall of Fame induction speech for the NBA, Michael Jordan talked about basketball courts as a refuge of peace. Then a few years later, as they were celebrating the fact that he was turning 50, he was asking the question, what, how can I still find peace now that the basketball courts are closed to me? Where's the refuge now? Realistically, that's a, a question that we need to think through. Where is a refuge of peace that doesn't go away as circumstances and times change. It doesn't go away simply because we move or our bodies decay or even the real kicker. What is a refuge of peace that outlasts death itself? Because truly what good is peace if it only lasts for a certain period of time. Jesus here speaks of something that threatens peace. He speaks of a, a condemnation of hell, the ultimate end of the woes and announcement of judgment is not so much just announcement of some bad things happening in this life, the condemnation of eternal torment and fire. The condemnation of being separated from God's goodness and life-giving. What's the refuge? What's the peace that outlasts that? That protects against that? What's the peace we carry to our graves? say that Jesus tells us that the that repentant faith not anything about bloodlines or works we do but repentant faith is the road to flee the coming judgment it's ultimately the road that leads to the escape 
and refuge of peace found in Jesus himself. We begin with the last woe. Woe 7, verses 29 to 33, decorating grace. Verses 29 to 33. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Introductory formula once again. He announces the judgment with the word woe. He describes them as scribes and Pharisees, and not only that, but hypocritical pretenders. And then he announces the judgment because of something that at first seems like a good thing. They're decorating the graves of the prophets and the righteous men. They're decorating it as a form of showing honor to these men who announced the way of God and indeed had announced Jesus' coming. Their hope, their expected effect, is to be honoring them. And indeed, they even have the naive statement in verse 30, that they would have done differently than their fathers. Their fathers killed the prophets, but had they been there, they would not have partaken in that blood. The impulse we tend to keep with us. Thinking about sins of the past, perhaps we think about the Israelites in the wilderness, perhaps we think about Peter and his denials, perhaps we even think about Mrs. Job. But we tend to harp and heap blame and condemnation. We tend to say, if we had been in their shoes, we wouldn't have done the same thing. And that's what the Pharisees are doing as they are washing and garnishing the sepulchers and graves of these righteous men, saying, we wouldn't have partaken in the blood had we been there. Jesus tells them that in so doing, they are witnesses unto themselves. They are children of those that killed the prophets. Now there's a lot going on in that description of the fact that they are children of those who killed the prophets. For one thing, and mentioned and talked about in Sunday school, the fact that the Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers unto the children, unto the third and fourth generation. 
not because the father's sins are punishing the children, but because, as was mentioned in Sunday school, children learn what they live. Certain sins tend to be passed down from generation to generation. There's even the reality that when you have something like son of blank within Hebrew language, within Hebrew culture, you could also be saying you're characterized by that thing. Is it the case that they are sons of those who killed the prophets? Not just because they are the physical offspring, but because they share a resemblance between them. There is even more. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, said at the very beginning of Jesus as an adult, beginning his public ministry. And it provides within the Gospel of Matthew our first introduction to these Pharisees. It happens when John, who announced that Jesus was coming, indeed was a sign that Jesus was coming by his very presence, was baptizing of repentance, and the Pharisees come. When the Pharisees come, John immediately responds, Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. First introduction to the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew. And John is looking at them and saying, you descend from serpents. You're the generation of vipers. He's saying that they need to flee. He's asking who warned them to flee from the coming wrath. Both of those expressions are similar to what Jesus will say later on in our passage. And he asks them to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Not saying we have Abraham as our father, because God can raise of these stones children unto Abraham. That won't save them. But it also tells us that John thinks that they have a certain pride in their bloodline. That they think the fact that they are descended from Abraham is helpful to them. And yet this pride in their bloodline means the same thing of their children, of those who killed the prophets. 
Where's the pride in being able to say, yeah, we're Abraham's children, as well as the children of those who killed those who truly followed after the faith of Abraham. There's that further charge that's made in the statement that they are the children of those who killed the prophets. Jesus says in verses 32 to 33, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? passage we read in scripture reading of Genesis 3, 14 through 20, particularly Genesis 3, 15, presented a hostility between those who were children of the woman and those who were children of the serpent. As it keeps going into Genesis 4 and Cain kills Abel, it comes to start to become clear that those who are children of the serpent are children of Figuratively. They're children of the serpent because they act like the serpent. So, as Cain being one of the first, well, the first children of the serpent, kills Abel, so too he looks at them and says, You're children of the serpent. You're on the wrong side of the hostility that's been since sin entered the world. Here, sitting with the one who will be condemned. So how can you escape the damnation of hell? That is the key question. Not just for the Pharisees, but for anyone. It's the key question for us. Adam and Eve, first man and the first woman. When we think about bloodlines, we ultimately all trace ourselves back to them. And Adam sinned. Indeed, from that one sin, one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, because that all have sinned. We will have as part of our bloodline an inherited guilt, but then we ourselves engage. We ourselves sin. Not one person in this room has not sinned. And I'd even go so far to say that there's not one person in this room who has not sinned today. It is in our nature since Adam to find ourselves lying, to find ourselves lusting, to find ourselves being greedy, to find ourselves not giving to God the worship and thankfulness that is his due. To take his name emptily. 
to bear his image in ways that don't reflect his character. And with that being the case, we're not going to find blood. Nor are we going to find righteousness of our own that's going to protect us and cause us to escape the damnation of hell. Because after all, any righteousness of our own is simply cleaning the outside of the dish. Leaving the inside dirty. We need a, a cleansing from the inside out. We need someone to take upon the punishment that should be ours, since God cannot tolerate sin and must punish it. But he punishes it in two places. He punishes it in this damnation of hell. And he punishes it on the cross of Christ. The person of Christ. Pouring his wrath out upon him. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? There's only one way. And that one way is in the snake crusher crushed for us. That one way is in Jesus, the Son of God, who died bearing our sin and the punishment we deserve and rose again three days later. It's not in the bloodlines, as the Pharisees tend to think, or in any sort of outside actions as the Pharisees focused on, but in a repentant faith. Repentance being a fancy word for turning Returning from our sin, returning from our self-righteousness, returning from anything that we could put our confidence in and instead placing it in Jesus Christ. Turning from sin to Christ on the cross. And asking for salvation from our sins, forgiveness, and life. That is how to escape the damnation of hell. To come to the one who is crushed for us and receive him as our only hope. Jesus ends with the question. How are you to escape the damnation of hell? And then he continues, continues his discourse summarizing the results of all of the woes with the word wherefore or therefore and a reality of all the righteous blood. Matthew 23, 34 to 36. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you 
may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now there's already a, a certain tenderness present in what Jesus says here. There's really a lot of tenderness in how his words finish in verses 37 to 39 as he laments and mourns over Jerusalem's lack of repentance. But there's already a great sense of tenderness from this divine just judge. After he asks, how are they to flee? How are they to escape the damnation of hell? He announces the sending of prophets, wise men, scribes. Was wise men, prophets, and scribes, was particularly prophets and righteous who have been killed in verses 29 to 30. But Jesus doesn't just mean those sent by his father at that time, but those he will send. People like Peter, people like Paul, who were indeed killed, crucified, Scourged in the synagogues and persecuted from city to city. Indeed, we just mentioned Paul as one who was persecuted. But we could also talk about the very fact that he went from city to city, persecuting the church. Persecuting those who would proclaim this good news of Christ crucified, the hope of the world. The calls for repentance still come out. Jesus still sends wise men and scribes and prophets. But then it also states, Jesus states, that this is done so that all the righteous blood would ultimately come upon that generation. He looks at this righteous blood and he describes righteous Abel and the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom was slain between the temple or the holy place and the altar. Turn back to Genesis 4. Genesis 3, God announces the ground is cursed. The serpent is cursed. There's going to be pain for man and the woman. Eve has a son named Cain because she got him from the help of the Lord. It's another son named Abel. Cain resembles the serpent more than the serpent crusher. Indeed, Cain kills Abel, his brother. Kills him in the field. Abel, having been accepted by the Lord, is killed because of Cain's jealousy that he wasn't accepted. In Genesis 4, 
9 through 12. The Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tellest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. The Lord again asks the question he already knows the answer to. But Cain isn't playing any blame game. He simply lies to say he doesn't know. He tries to make it seem like it's not his concern. So the Lord asks, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood crieth out unto me from the ground. It's crying out for vengeance and justice. It's crying out for retribution. So for the first time within the the Bible, a human being is cursed as God announces a curse upon Cain. Cursed are you from the earth. From Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom was slain between the holy place and the altar. Now, there's question about what Zechariah is mentioned here. So Zechariah the prophet, and there's a Zechariah the priest. And the thing about Zechariah the prophet is that we know that somewhere in his lineage, there is a man named Berechiah. But the thing about Zechariah the priest is that we know he was killed between the holy place and the altar. So we have to assume information we don't have that Jesus did, that either Zechariah the priest had a father or grandfather named Berechiah, or that Zechariah the prophet died in the same way as Zechariah the priest. I tend to think that we're supposed to see this as Zechariah the priest, whose death is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 24. You can turn there if you want to. There Joash is reigning. And Jehoiada has been a good counsel to Joash. Such that he's been following the Lord. But then Jehoiada dies. Joash doesn't continue to follow the Lord. But Zechariah stands up and says, we should continue to follow. In 2 Chronicles 24, verses 19 through 22, explains us how that goes. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not give ear. 
And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his sons. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. Genesis 4, the Lord says that the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. In 2 Chronicles 24, Joash, or Zechariah, as he dies, declares, May the Lord look upon it and require it. May he require my blood at your hands. The blood cries out for vengeance, for justice. For retribution. In Matthew 23, 35 to 36, Jesus says, That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jesus is announcing that the blood that's been crying out for vengeance will have itself satiated with this generation. The temple order is in the process of being undone. Jesus will leave the temple and leave it abandoned and deserted. The temple itself will ultimately be destroyed during that same generation. The blood will come upon. But as we conclude today, I want us to think about Hebrews 12, 24. Matthew 23 is not the last time that the blood of Abel is mentioned in the Bible. Rather, in Hebrews 12, 24, we are told that we are coming to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood and Zechariah's blood and the blood of all other righteous men shed upon the earth call out vengeance, judgment, and retribution. But for those who believe, 
The blood of Christ calls out mercy, pardon, forgiveness. It calls out salvation and eternal life. Ultimately, it calls out a refuge, a refuge of peace and an escape from the coming condemnation. It cries out life forevermore. So come, come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks this better word. Come to Jesus and receive his life. Come to the one who bore your sins and is a refuge of lasting peace. A refuge that allows you to escape from the coming condemnation. Father God, we thank you that your son's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And it doesn't just speak, here's a good example, but rather it speaks, it is finished it is done. It is paid for. Take and receive. We are glad, Lord, that you have provided for us a way and a hope. And we are asking, Lord, that we would rejoice in that more and more. And that the overflow of our rejoicing in it would spread out to those around us. Lord, thank you. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria of Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?